In a, cu- in a couple of weeks at CTS, we're going to be taking a whole week to look at the Psalms. And uh, for you CTSers, you can think of this as the first of those teachings. This is kind of introduction to that. So um, think of it that way. Uh, I want to open just by uh, reading Psalm 1 and then diving right in. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I don't know how many people in here know the song, You're So Vain. Anybody know the song? You know, if you're my age and up, you might know the song, You're So Vain. It's by Carly Simon. She dated Warren Beatty for a time, and it's a song about him. Uh, and the, the refrain or the chorus of the song goes, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Um, and the irony is, it is about Warren Beatty, or it is about whoever jilted her. Um, and I think it's, it, it's a fun little song to think about when we think about this psalm. Because this is the psalm that we're all like, oh yeah, this is a psalm about meditating scripture. And it teaches us if we meditate on scripture, we'll be blessed. I want to meditate on scripture. Uh, so, you know, you too can be the blessed man. And uh, I want to suggest that's wrong, uh, that this psalm is not about you. It is not about me. All right. We're so vain that we think every scripture is about us. And it's not. All right. I don't think ultimately Psalm 1 is about us in the way that we think it is. Oh, here's an application about a great teaching about how to be blessed. Let me do it. And voila, I'll be the blessed man. Uh, it's not. I don't think it's about that. Of course, Then you say, well, who is the blessed man? And everybody knows the answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus. And of course, yes, he is the blessed man. All right. That's the first thing I want to say. But I don't want to rush to how we get there. All right. We know the key to reading the Old Testament is to read it through the lens of Jesus and to look for Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. But I think it's important when we do that to not rush it, to not force it, but find out how the scripture itself leads us to that place? How does it lead us to the place to say, you're not the blessed man, Jesus is the blessed man, and you can be blessed in him. And as often with scripture, uh, the advice of Dory in, I don't know which movie she said it in, but just keep swimming, just keep reading, okay? Just keep reading, and you'll discover how this is not you, that this is not me, but this is the blessed man, Jesus, Uh, And the way to do that is um, by looking at Psalm 2. All right, so I want to read Psalm 2. And this is what I want you to consider as I read it. Are these similar psalms? Are they alike at all? All right, so we've just read Psalm 1. Here's Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in first glance, Psalm 2 doesn't look an awful lot like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is about uh, meditating on Scripture and the difference between those who meditate on Scripture and those who don't. Psalm 2 is about this king that God has chosen that the people are going to oppose. Well, hopefully you can see where I'm going. The king that God has chosen that all the nations oppose is the blessed man of Psalm 1. The blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates on God's law day and night is the Messiah that God has chosen and installed on his holy hill of Zion. And there's a lot of clues, if you read carefully, that show that Psalm 1 and 2 either are really one psalm or a kind of a diptych where they they interpret one another and they're to be read in light of one another. So let me give you a a few cues that will point this out. The first is Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. It begins with this blessed. And Psalm 2 ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, I wore this shirt today. I love chiasms. Because we have a chiasm right here. We have a a bookend right here. Blessed bookends these two psalms, right? There's the blessed man who meditates on God's law day and night, and you and I can be blessed if we take refuge in him. All right, so right off the bat, it bookends the the two psalms with blessed. Then we have the counsel of the wicked in Psalm 1, the, the counsel of the wicked, the advice of the wicked. And in Psalm 2, we have the parallel of the people plotting in vain. All right? And we should see those as similar, the counsel of the wicked and the people plotting in vain against God and against his anointed. In Psalm 1, we have the way of the sinners will perish. And in Psalm 2, towards the end, you will perish in the way unless you take refuge, unless you turn and take refuge in God's chosen one. In Psalm 1, what do the scoffers do? They sit, all right? They sit and they, they mock, they, they deride, much like the soldier sat at the foot of the cross. And in Psalm 2, what does God do? He sits in the heavens and he laughs. All right, he laughs at those who plot against him because he knows ultimately all their plots and all their schemes are going to come to nothing. In Psalm 1, it says that the blessed man meditates on Scripture, and Psalm 2 uses precisely the same word for what the peoples do. They plot in vain. That word plotting is the same word for meditation from Psalm 1. So there's another verbal link between the two. Um, So there's all these links in there, and what I want to suggest is that Psalm Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. All right, they are deliberately put there by David uh, to be the introduction and the way into the entire book of Psalms. And so using Psalm 2, this is what we can say about the identity, who the blessed man is. The blessed man is the king in David's line, promised to David to inherit his throne, the Messiah that God has chosen to be his judge and ruler over all nations. And you're either on his side or you're opposed to him. 
right? You're either on the side of God's chosen Messiah or you're against him. That's why it says at the end, blesses the one who takes refuge in him. He is the blessed, happy one. And we should be able to both think that Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and the most joyful person that has ever lived, right? Uh, and uh, that's another way to, to understand blessed. So uh, happy are those, blessed are those who take refuge in God's chosen king. He's the vine, to use the image of Psalm 1, and we're the branches. He's that tree, and we can be grafted into that tree. But we're not blessed just by, oh, here's some principles, let me follow these principles, and I'll be a blessed man. So uh, one of the images that has been suggested about the Psalms is you should think of the book of Psalms as uh, David's playlist. All right, David's playlist like on Spotify. But uh, I used another analogy in, in CTS this past week. Think of it as David's concept album. And if you're, you have to be my age or older to know what a concept album is, probably. But it's just an album with all the songs that are meant to go one after the other and kind of tell a story. And actually, somebody else has used an even better image. You can think of the book of Psalms as a musical. And I don't know if you hate musicals or not, but uh, it's a musical that tells one narrative, one story about God's chosen king and his journey from suffering and opposition uh, into enthronement, into exile, and return from exile. So the book of Psalms is, I think that's one of the best ways to look at it, is uh, is as a musical. And if you listen to it, and how many people have, I mean, everybody in here has songs or maybe records that you know every word. You know every word of those things, right? What I want to suggest is that the Psalms are meant to be such that we have every, we know them inside and out. We know what track is next, right? We know what song is next, such that it shapes our worldview and our affections and our mind to be like the mind of God's chosen king. It's meant to shape our worldview as we sing these songs, as we study them, as we steep in them, as we become familiar with them. A couple of things about that. It says that the blessed man, the king, would meditate on God's word. He, he delights in God's word and he meditates on it day and night. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, in Deuteronomy 17, it gives the stipulations for the king that would come. And one of the things that it says about this king that would come is that he needed to write out a copy of the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had to write it out by hand and keep that copy with him and read it day and night. Now, just to give an analogy, can you imagine if every president of the United States and every Supreme Court justice and every lawmaker we elect had to write out a personal copy of the Constitution and spend an hour every day studying it? Can you imagine if they all did that, what our country would be like and how different it would be from what it is, all right? Well, that's precisely what the law was supposed to do for the king of Israel. The king of Israel was not like the monarchs of later Europe who could just do anything. They were under God's teaching and they had to know it intimately and be steeped in it and study it day and night. So they had to study it day and night. And then if you listen to that language of day and night, it probably makes you think of Joshua chapter 1, where God tells Joshua, listen, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. That's a way of saying you should be muttering the book of the law all the time. 
And when you do, when you mutter on the book of law, when you meditate, when you chew on it day and night, when it's in your mouth, and that means not just between your ears, but between your ears and proceeding out of your lips, then it will form and influence the way you live. And it will, that same language, by the way, of everything he does prospers, it says the same thing to Joshua. If you meditate on this book of the law day and night, everything you do as you bring my people into the land will prosper. Um, So, of course, Jesus is that blessed man. And when you think about how Jesus knew the law, knew his father's teachings, was always telling people, always having conversations with people, this is what the law says, how do you read it? And then he would give the right interpretation. The Sermon on the Mount is the right interpretation of the law that Jesus has come to fulfill and help other people fulfill. And think about, for Jesus, I want to suggest that Jesus and many pious Jews of Jesus' day had the Psalms all memorized word for word. They could do every one of them. Give me Psalm 63, boom. And one of the proofs of that is that on the cross, Jesus pops out with Psalm 22. Like under our worst stress and under the worst duress that we face, what comes out? For Jesus, it was the Psalms. They are the songs of our Lord's heart. And so Psalm 1 and 2 are the, are the overture. Again, if you know music, if you know musicals, if you know classical music, the overture is this little piece of music at the beginning of this big, long work that introduces all the themes and all the characters and all the melodies that will appear throughout the whole work. And I want to suggest in Psalm 1 and 2, you get everything in a nutshell that will be unpacked in the next 148 psalms as they come along. You get all the characters. You get the most important character, which is God's chosen king, the one in the line of David. You get all the nations that will oppose him, and that's one of the major plot lines, right, is the the opposition to this king and his rule. You get the followers, and by the way, there's another place we can find ourselves in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You can take refuge in him and be blessed, But the other place that you can find it in Psalm 1 is the congregation of the righteous, right? Those who gather around the blessed man. Those who say, I want to swear my allegiance to that blessed man. That's the congregation of the righteous. So you have his followers who, as we know, will fail the king and will turn away from the king. So it's the overture that gives us all the major themes that will unfold over the course of the drama. So, again, what I want to start with is that we can be blessed, as Psalm 1 outlines being blessed, but it is only as we take refuge in Jesus, and it is only as we learn from him, the truly blessed man. And the good news about that is this is not moralism. This is not, here's some principles, follow them, and you'll achieve. This is, you haven't achieved, but he has. And in him and in his, as his student, you can receive the blessing that this psalm speaks of, but it's only an attachment to him. I believe in John 17, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he's meditating on Psalm 1. He's inviting us into a deeper understanding of Psalm 1. All right, It is as you are attached to me, it is as you are grafted into me, that you can walk in and receive this, this blessing. So, the invitation of Psalm 1 and 2 is for us to take refuge in this king to take shelter from judgment in this king. Uh, To put it in Jesus' terms in Matthew chapter 11, to take his yoke. 
to say, you're the blessed man. You understand God's teachings. I am going to take your yoke on me and let you be my teacher. What's beautiful about that is that as we do that, we do indeed become saplings. We do indeed become trees uh, that are like the one tree that spawned the other trees. In Psalm 92, this image goes forward. This is 92 and 12. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So as we go through the Psalms, you see people who have meditated and have found shelter in the blessed man. They've become like trees, all right, planted out from him uh, because they have heeded the invitation and the warning of Psalm 1. So um, a few more things about, so back to Psalm 1 itself, a few more things about the Psalm. Uh, first of all, if you think about it long, and you should think in pictures because the Bible teaches in pictures. Uh, again, if you just stop for a bit, maybe we can do this. Think of trees. Everybody just name some trees in Scripture. This is helpful to understanding how the Bible teaches. Just name some trees. Cedar, Cedar trees in Lebanon. Not, and, not, and not just species of trees, but places trees come up. All right, Eden. And I think this psalm is deliberately taking us back to the Garden of Eden. All right? It's deliberately taking us back to there where God planted a garden and there are trees everywhere. The, tree, the trees that feed them, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else? The fig tree in Matthew that gets cursed because it doesn't bear fruit. Keep going. What's that? The mustard seed. That it looks unimpressive and it turns into a, a, a huge plant. Acacia. Acacia trees, yes. Revelation on the side of yeah, in Revelation, the one tree of life in the Garden of Eden has become multiple trees of life. Um, David is called what? Does anybody know a, a, a sort of a... He is the branch from Jesse's stump. So Jesse's a tree that gets cut down. But out of that tree that gets cut down, a branch rises up. Yeah. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is described as a tree that gets cut down and rises again. Something comes out of that stump. Um, trees bring together heaven and earth, right? Two realms that God designates in creation. So trees are everywhere in Scripture, but I want to drill down on the image of Eden um, and suggest that what the psalm, one of the things that the, psalms, the psalm is getting at is that God's words, okay, these words on the page translated from the original languages, these words mediate the presence of God. And, I, and I'm saying something more than just they talk about God and they're right. But the scriptures themselves, if we will heed the invitation, they put, let me put it this way, will bring us back into Eden. They'll bring us back into the presence of God if we, will, if we will heed them. They are something altogether different than all other texts and all other words. They actually bring the presence of God to us. You say these words and you start to smell the flowers of Eden. Think about, 
if you take these words into your heart and mind, what that means. Does that make sense? If we take the scripture's account of themselves seriously as something that genuinely and uniquely mediates God's heart and mind and presence to us, uh, I mean, what would we do with scripture if we took it seriously like that? As mediating the very presence of God, mediating the presence of our own king, right? And so one of the things that, one of the very simple things I want to suggest is, this is why memorizing scripture can be such a powerful tool because it's not just the words of the Gettysburg Address or the words of a poem you liked as a kid. It's the very words of God that can change us drastically and dramatically if we will take them into our lives and let them dwell there. So the Psalm, Psalm 1 opens up the two ways imagery, right? And we have this, this idea all through Scripture. Moses gets, uh, get, has people get up on one mountain and declare the blessings on another mountain and declare cursings and says, I put before you two ways, the way of cursing and the way of blessing. Choose life. Here we have the two ways uh, that, uh, that we're invited to consider. And of course, the first one op- opens with a progression. This guy walks, stands, sits, right? He progresses from sort of movement into a stasis in a certain way. And you contrast that with the blessed man who delights in the teaching of God. So first of all, it says he delights in his law. And I think we think, oh, he delights in the rules. And that's not exactly it. He delights in the Bible is one way to put it. He delights in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus even, right? He delights in those books. Uh, you, uh, uh, an important truth that I think a lot of people have learned is that you can choose what you delight in. That you are not just a victim of whatever you happen to want. Because, by the way, you know, you know how powerful that truth is, that you can choose what you delight in? People pay millions to get you to, to, to delight in their products. Because they know that they can get people to choose what they delight in. And this blessed man chooses to delight in God's word. You can delight in a lot of things. And to delight in this sense, I think it just means this is what is on your heart and mind, really, when you, all, when you get back to baseline. What you delight in can be lust. You can let that be the interior furniture of your heart and mind. It can be resentment, how people have treated you. Um, it can be resentment about your circumstances in life or your all kinds of things. It can be hobbies. Or it can be the Torah. It can be the teaching of God. And there's something about meditation. So that word means recite or mutter. Uh, it's related to the word for what uh, ruminants do. And the name of the animal tells what they do. A ruminant. How many different ruminants are there, Patrick? Do you know others than... So cattle are the premier ruminant. What a ruminant does when he eats is he swallows... It goes down into his first stomach and then it comes back up and he chews it some more. And then he swallows and it goes down into another stomach. Cows have four. I, I, don't, I don't know this is an expert, right? But they're called ruminants because of what they do with their food. And we are called to be ruminants. One of the purposes of the animals that are chosen for sacrifices in, in the temple is their symbols for us. Uh, and those animals are ruminants, right? And I think that's teaching us that we're called to be ruminants. We're called to meditate and to mutter on God's word. Um, The power of the mind 
I don't want to take this too far, but it's a real thing. The power of the mind is incredible. The mindset you choose, the things you choose to dwell on and think about, and the way that you decide to look at the world has a powerful influence. All right? Uh, Again, Patrick's going to have to correct me if I'm wrong. We study the placebo effect, and everybody knows what the placebo effect is, right? We can take a room full of people and give them a pill that is just a sugar pill. It doesn't do anything. And say, this pill will cure your psoriasis or whatever. And the remarkable thing, I have two pharmacists in here, so now I'm really sweating. The remarkable thing is, I think it's something like 35% of people that you give placebo, it will actually do the thing you told them it will do, even though it's not a drug that does anything. Right? And the nocebo effect is the same. Right? The opposite end of the spectrum. All right? So what does that say? I think, among other things, to me, that says that, the, that God gave us a mind, and our minds and the way we think about our lives are incredibly powerful and incredibly determinative for how our lives go. We know that if we dwell on anxiety, stress, resentment, those things have actual physical health results in our lives. And God wants us to thrive. He wants us to be blessed in his son. Uh, and he's called us, invited us to this meditation. Uh, hopefully when you think about meditation uh, or the day and night, it might make you think of a number of other scriptures. For example, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the way, when you go to bed and when you get up. That's night and day. All right, It's the same command. And remember, this was the command of the people of Israel. Uh, this was maybe the premier, you might call it the closest thing to a creed that the Jewish people had, to let the words of God be their meditation and their song day and night. A few other things. Uh, we mentioned trees. I want to suggest another image of a tree. By the way, again, just do that sometime. With any theme in Scripture, rocks, trees, rivers, See if you can trace a theme all through the scripture about what it says, because I think you will find that there is a theme. I want to suggest another tree in scripture is Abraham. Uh, sorry, this is just, a, this is just a, a parenthetical that I love. In the law, it says that when you get into the promised land, um, the fruit trees that are there, you can't eat of them. What it says is you've got to circumcise them. And what does that mean? What does circumcising a tree mean? A fruit tree. Prune it. When you get to the promised land, you can't eat of the fruit of the, the, the fruit trees that are there. Prune them, and in the third year, you can eat them. It's the word circumcise. And if you'll pay attention to the Abraham story, when Abraham is pruned, it is after Abraham is pruned that what happens? He has Isaac. You follow me? It is the pruning that makes him fruitful. All right, so again, Abraham is a kind of a tree. But just think of, of John the Baptist. When the new covenant starts, what does John the Baptist say? The axe is laid at the fruit of the trees. And those trees that don't bear fruit, they're going to be cut down. We mentioned Israel as a fig tree. Paul talks about uh, that we are all called to what? Bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's what a fruit tree does. Nebuchadnezzar, 
David. I've mentioned all those things. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. The word here for rivers of water is not the word for natural streams. It's for irrigation ditches. And I think this is suggestive, right? It's not just the streams that naturally occur, water that naturally occurs. It's water that you deliberately move in a particular direction so that that place can become fertile. And I think what this suggests is we start in Eden, but Psalm 1 suggests that God wants to, I'm going to put it this way, Edenize the world. The world is a wilderness. It's, it's unfruitful. It doesn't uh, respond to God, but we're called to be trees planted in places that are desert. But because there's irrigation that God provides, we're, we're called to be a shelter. Oh, there's another image of trees. Israel was called to be like a tree in which the birds, a, a huge tree like the mustard seed, among which all the, tree, all the animals, all the, excuse me, birds of all kinds take root in, take roost in, right? Um, so I think it suggests that this tree isn't in the Garden of Eden, but it's to bring Eden out into the world. And that is what all of our lives are called to be. That's what Jesus' life was. He came as a tree planted in the desert of the world with his roots in his father. And he bore fruit in his season and he doesn't stop bearing fruit and his leaf does not wither. And we're called to be the same. Let me just, uh, just end with this, this image that I think is evocative of all these scriptures, particularly Jesus' uh, meditation on Psalm 1 in John 17, grafting. One of my favorite stories that I've ever read about grafting is about a guy who is an enthusiast for extinct varieties of apples. Apple seed, if you take apple seed, could produce up to a thousand different varieties of apple. You can't take seed from an apple you like and get the kind of apple you want from it. So what we do is we find the apples that we like that have, we've brought out through various kinds of cultivation and we graft them onto good roots. All right, that's the only guarantee to have good kinds of fruit because some of them just don't have good roots. So this guy, can't remember his name, but what he's done is he goes into old city records, old planting records, and finds old orchards that are all overgrown, right? And finds apple varieties that haven't been eaten by somebody for about 100 years. He'll find an old overgrown forest and find a very old apple tree that is not producing anything and take a little snippet from that and bring it back to his tree with really good roots, he'll graft it into that tree, and it will produce that apple. And he can eat a kind of apple that people were eating 100 years ago. One of his trees has over 60 different kinds of apples on it. It's a great image for the kingdom. So grafting. Grafting to me is magic. I, again, I've never done it, but has anybody ever done grafting? So here's what happens. You have an apple tree. And you cut, I mean, it's got good roots, you cut it off, or you cut a branch off, you go to the tree that you want the fruit for, and you cut it off, and you put those ends together, and you literally tape them up. And you give it time, and they will connect, and sap will begin to flow, and that little branch will produce the fruit that it was meant to produce. To me, that's like magic. All right, and we do it all the time. We've been doing it, doing it for thousands of years, and I think it's behind the images in Psalm 1 and John 17. We're to be grafted into Jesus. So real quick, consider what grafting does. You take cutting, you cut something off, you put it in contact with something new, and you give it time. You cut something off, you put it, contact, put it into contact with something new, and you give it time, and voila, it produces the fruit it's meant to produce. 
And I think that this is a good way to think about Psalm 1. Uh, the cutting is repentance, right? It's repentance. It's saying, my mind and the fruit that my heart and mind bears, the resentment that it bears, the sadness that it bears, the irritation that it bears, the lust that it bears, I, I want that cut off. And I want to cling to the blessed man. I want to abide in the vine. And again, that, that word for abide means to stay over time, right? To stay over time. So the invitation of Psalm 1 is to uproot your own thoughts. Uh, uproot the thoughts in you that you know don't bear good fruit. And take his thoughts. Cling to them. Make contact with them through the word. And then keep doing that over time. All right, this is not quick fix change. This is long contact over time that bears the kind of fruit that God wants us to bear. It's where we memorize, we meditate day and night, year after year on God's word, and it bears the kind of fruit that he's invited us to bear as a part of the blessed man. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.